Please be seated. And as you are, if you have a copy of the scriptures with you this evening, I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. That's Matthew's Gospel, and our first reading will be taken from chapter 24, uh, though, as you probably know, our principal text is taken from the 25th chapter. That's Matthew 24, and we'll begin our reading this evening here at verse 42. That's Matthew 24, and starting there at verse 42. I'll just say before you read um, that as you look at this text and you see that in conjunction with what we have in our principal text, Matthew 25, uh, you'll notice here that there is a basic theme, a recurring idea that Christ communicates in these three parables. And that is that at the end of the age, there will be surprise. Friend, I think that's perhaps one of the most overlooked element in this portion of Matthew's Gospel. But that is again and again what Christ reiterates here. There will be some on the last day who will find themselves surprised. Some who will find them, contrary to all of their expectation, utterly disappointed. And so, beloved, hear the word of our God the inerrant, the infallible word of the only true God. Watch, therefore, for ye know not what hour your Lord doth come. But know this, that if the good man of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, he, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. Therefore be ye also ready, for in such an hour as ye think not, the Son of Man cometh. Who then is a faithful and wise servant, whom his Lord hath made ruler over his household, to give them meat in due season? Blessed is that servant, whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. Verily I say unto you, that he shall make him ruler over all goods. But, and if that evil servant shall say in his heart, My Lord delayeth his coming shall begin to smite his fellow servants and to eat and to drink with the drunken. The Lord of that servant shall come in a day when he looketh not for him, and in an hour that he is not aware of, and shall cut him asunder, and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom, Five of them were wise and five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took in, took oil in their vessels with their lamps. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you. But go ye rather to them that sell, and buy for yourselves. While they went to buy, the bridegroom came. And they that were ready went in with him to the marriage. And the door was shut. 
Afterward came also the other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. Let's further reading of God's holy word. Indeed, may he bless us under it this evening. Well, friend, by, by way of b- very brief introduction, allow me just to reacquaint ourselves with, with where we are in this portion of God's word. The Lord tells us in the very first verse that this parable is of the kingdom of heaven. This is, in other words, the church of God on earth, the, the whole community of those who call themselves Christians. And this is that community of professing believers, especially in Christ's view before judgment, before the consummation, the last day. Now, friend, as you look at this text, I want you to notice again that this is given to us through a very familiar image, that of preparation for the wedding ceremony. And so you have ten virgins. Very customary, these ten virgins were there to attend on the bride as they waited for the arrival of the bridegroom and the other groomsmen. Now, the point that we've driven time and again, and I'll reiterate it here, is that Christ takes hold of an image, these ten virgins, that in this first century certainly communicated this idea of purity. In fact, it was the presence of these virgins at a marriage that really underscored the, the sanctity of marriage itself. And so as Christ takes up this image, really he's communicating to us that, that his focus here is not on the harlots, not on those who are manifestly impure in the church, not on, as it were, the nominal Christian. That's not at all Christ's focus. His focus are on those who are seemingly visibly pure. These are the ten virgins in our text. And he tells us that these ten who look so much alike, five were wise and five were foolish. And we see the foolishness and the wisdom of both in our text. If you remember on Tuesday evening when we were looking at this text, you remember that the foolishness of the five was manifest in the fact that they came with so little preparation. In fact, no real preparation at all. They came, they came contented with a measure, a measure, as it were, of, of religion. They came contented with, with a respectable, with, with a comfortable kind of Christianity, and they said that was sufficient. And with that, they slumbered and slept. But then if you remember, if you were with us last evening, we took up the wisdom of the wise here. And we saw that that wisdom was principally in this. That those ones, they came duly prepared. They came as those, in other words, who were not contented, like the foolish were with a small measure of godliness. No, no, the work of grace that was done in these ones urged them not to rest in meager things urged them, as it were, to press forward for greater preparation. You see, the foolishness of the foolish was this, that they were contented with something short of true repentance and genuine faith, where the wisdom of the wise in our text is that they were duly prepared, a repenting and a faithful people. Now that brings us to our text this evening. We look up primarily this evening 
verses 5 and following. We're told, first of all, in the fifth verse, that while the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. Now, the historians tell us, and anybody who has visited the Middle East will tell you, that even to this day, it's quite customary for the bridegroom, as the contract is in the making, to tarry. In other words, this period of preparation is usually a rather lengthy period. It's customary. But, but I want you to notice what the text tells us here, that both the wise and the foolish in this period of, of delay, they, they both slumber and sleep. And you remember, if you were with us last evening, that the idea behind that is, this is really a necessary thing. It's neither good nor evil. They're, they're both slumbering and sleeping. And the wise, they're not, they're not called fools for doing so. And the idea behind this is that the Christian, likewise, will fall into necessary labors. His mind will necessarily be occupied with the things of this world because he lives in the world. And Christ in John 17 said he would have them remain in the world. And and so the foolish and the wise, they're both about their necessary worldly employments. But the difference, of course, is this. The wise slept with their preparations. The wise slept with their provisions beside them. Now, as they were sleeping, we're told in the next line, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Go ye out to meet him. And this is, of course, one of the groomsmen. He was to go before the bridegroom, and he was was to announce the coming of the bridegroom. I want you to notice there are a couple of similarities here already. First of all, when the announcer comes, he comes and he finds them both slumbering and sleeping. And then we're told, that both of them have the same command. They're both commanded to to go out to meet the bridegroom. Not only that, but in the very next line, we're told they have the same response. All those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the idea behind trimming a lamp was they they made, as much as they could, their lamp to be beautified, or or to, to make it even perhaps a bit more concrete. They wanted to burn brighter. That's the idea. All of them. The wise and the foolish had the same command, were both in a slumbering and sleeping condition when the announcement came. Both of them made some response to the groomsman as he called. Both of them trimmed their lamps. But in our text, there is one difference. The foolish go to the wise. They ask for more oil because they say our lamps are gone out. What you and I are supposed to see there is that though they had so much in common, this they did not. It was the foolish that would express, they would express their regret. They would express their real disappointment because they find in this moment they weren't prepared at all. A friend, for us to understand that, I want us to step back just for a moment and look at two things. I want us to look, first of all, at the timing of all of this. If you notice, first of all, you and I in this text find the person, the groomsman, who is to announce the coming of the bridegroom before we see the bridegroom himself. Again, that was very customary, but but it's important for me to note to you that, that part of this custom that Christ is alluding to is that this announcer... This groomsman would come not only, not only frequently, but he would come at, at, at some distance of time before the bridegroom actually arrived. 
In other words, and you can find this even in Middle Eastern marriages today, the person who would announce the coming of the bridegroom would do so hours before the bridegroom actually arrived. And there's something of this actually embedded in our text. I want you to notice that the person announces here the coming of the bridegroom, and yet the virgins are conceived to be able to go out and buy in the meantime. The bridegroom does not show up immediately in our parable any more than he would in the customary marriages to which Christ is alluding. There is some considerable time between the announcement and the arrival. But I do want us to focus just for a moment longer on the messenger. Who is the one who's announcing the bridegroom's arrival? Now again, friend, this is a groomsman. And necessarily, he would be part of the bridal party in that part, in that in that respect. He would often be going to the bride and to the bridesmaids, and he would often be saying, "The bridegroom is coming," to keep them in readiness. That was his task. He was a friend of the bridegroom, sent to urge preparation for the bride and her party. The question you and I have to ask is, who is this? Obviously not the name, but but what what is this person in the parable? I think the third chapter of John's Gospel really helps us here. Uh, You might remember John the Baptist says this about his own calling. He describes himself as the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Very likely, John the Baptist is referring to this self-same custom in which the groomsmen would go out to the bridesmaids, urge preparation, and he would do so at some considerable time removed from the bridegroom's arrival. But what would rejoice this groomsman was when he heard the bridegroom make his actual approach. Certainly, John the Baptist saw that in his ministry. He could say with pointed finger, Behold the Lamb. He went at some considerable time before the public manifestation of Christ to prepare the bride of God, that is, the church underage, for his coming. And that is the messenger. The messenger of our text is no different. He is urging the bride to be prepared. The virgins here to to be duly prepared for the coming of the bridegroom. And surely, friend, like John the Baptist, these are those who are called to preach, who are called to preach at even some considerable time before the arrival of Christ. They're preaching before the final judgment. Now, friend, if we hold all of those things together, there's something quite staggering about our parable. What's staggering and what's unique about our parable that sets, it, that sets it apart from the two previous parables in Matthew 24 is that then in this text, you and I, we find five who are not surprised at the coming of Christ, but who are surprised and even made to regret their lack of preparation before the end. That's the staggering thing. If you notice, if you notice chapter 24, the first parable, the good man is surprised when the thief comes in. The idea there is, is that's the man surprised at the coming of Christ. The evil servant is surprised at the coming of his master. But these ones in our text are surprised 
before the bridegroom arrives. And they express some regret before the final judgment. It's because of this, friend, that I would submit to you that this is one of the most searching aspects of this parable. Because what Christ here is alluding to is the idea that even before judgment, false Christians may regret the absence of true grace. The foolish virgins could regret, even before the arrival of the bridegroom, the fact they were ill-prepared. Christ here is teaching that same it is with false Christians. Even before the end, they may express some regret, some remorse for their hypocrisy, for their lack of genuine grace. Briefly, friend, I want us to take up this theme. I want us to look at it really under two headings. And the first of that is I want us to examine the regret that we find in this passage. It might not meet us immediately, but if you look at the eighth verse, you'll notice that after they make their request of the wise virgins, they they say, our lamps are gone out. Now again, if you are listening to this from the lips of Christ in the first century, what's the kind of image that you have here? Well, the image is is that of of these foolish virgins taking up their lamps, again, that were poles with the end, one end wrapped in a cloth, covered in oil, and, and they've trimmed them, they've beautified them, and they've lit them. Now, friend, hold that image with you in your mind for a moment. The idea is, is that they've lit these things, and the bridegroom obviously hasn't arrived yet, and well, their lamps go out. Now, friend, I want you to notice that this produces in them genuine disappointment. And if you were, again, accustomed to seeing these kinds of things in your own day, you would imagine the kind of disappointment that was in view. These are five virgins who had failed in their task. They they were not duly prepared. The bride was dishonored. The bridegroom was dishonored. They themselves had brought dishonor upon their own names. And so, friend, you're supposed to understand here that this is a genuine disappointment that they're expressing. And again, if you remember last time we were together, I said to you that there's nothing in this text that would lead us to conclude or lead the first hearers of this parable to conclude that that we should see these virgins as engaged in self-sabotage. It's not as though they intended to fail. No, no, not at all. No, friend, this is genuine disappointment that's described here. It's that same kind of disappointment and surprisal that you find in the two parables preceding, that of the good man of the house and the evil servant. And friend, then this is a shocking moment for these ones. That's the kind of idea you would have if you you were listening to this the first time. And friend, what this teaches us then is that even before the judgment, even before the door is shut. We're told here that false Christians may regret sin and hypocrisy. And they may do so not in a superficial way. There may be an internal regret that they, that they actually experience. Friend, I, I need to say this to you because I think our generation has lost what this text is indicating for us. I think so many are under the illusion that that all regret, all regret is penitence. All sorrow is necessarily godly sorrow. 
Friend, this text and so many other places in sacred scripture show us that that's not the case at all. Friend, it's possible for somebody who is, who is not a true Christian, somebody who has not, who has not exercised faith in Christ, who does not exercise genuine repentance, to nevertheless be filled with some kind of remorse and some kind of sorrow. I want to put this to you really directly, friend. In in 2 Corinthians 7, the Apostle Paul says this explicitly. He says, Godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Note what he says there. He's, He's talking to Corinthians and he's talking about their earnest desires to repent, that is to, to, to kill sin in their lives and, and to live more and more unto God. And, and he's even referring earlier in the text to, to the earnest desires that the Corinthians had for this repentance. But I want you to notice the distinction the apostle makes. He says that there is a godly sorrow and there's a worldly sorrow. It is not the case, says the apostle Paul, that all regret is necessarily godly. It is not the case that all sorrow, even connected with sin, is necessarily godly sorrow. And friend, in the scriptures, examples of this abound. Just take, uh, we'll, take, we'll take a brief spade of these this evening, and, and in no particular order. You remember whenever the rich young ruler came to Christ in the Gospels, you remember how that conversation ends. It ends, it ends with, with the rich young ruler, as Luke tells us, Having heard what Christ said, he was very sorrowful. That's how he went away. He was very sorrowful, says the text. Weeping. I'll give you another example, perhaps one that's a bit more familiar to us. You have Ahab, one of the most wicked kings in all of Scripture. Whenever the prophet Elijah came to him and pronounced that judgment would fall upon his house because of his gross wickedness. Here's Ahab's response. When Ahab heard those words, that he, then he rent his cloths and put sackcloth upon his flesh and, and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went softly. And this is what the Lord says to his prophet afterward. He says, Seest thou how Ahab humbleth himself before me? Because he hath humbled himself before me, I will not bring the evil in his days. But friend, I want you to notice something later on in the text. The Lord very clearly indicates this was not genuine repentance. Ahab will die the death of the wicked. But for a time he went softly. For a time he wept. Maybe even a more familiar example comes to us from Scripture. As Saul was persecuting his son-in-law David, we find this moment. Saul said, is is this thy voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept and said, Thou art more righteous than I, for thou hast rewarded me good, whereas I have rewarded the evil. That's a wonderful confession. It's a wonderful moment where this king who's been tyrannically persecuting the one who's been anointed by God to be true king of Israel after him. It's remarkable that Saul then comes to this point where he says he has been evil and David has been righteous and he does so with weeping. But friend, you might know how Saul's life ends. He, he ends consulting the witch at Endor. He ends again dying the death of the wicked. The last friend of these examples, just allow me to take you to the New Testament. There was a man, he was called Simon the Sorcerer, or Simon Magus. And we're told that he believed in the text. Then we're told this, 
Peter says to him, I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Then answered Simon and said, Pray ye to the Lord for me that none of these things which he has spoken come upon me. Friend, in all of those cases, the one common denominator is each of these ones exercise some sorrow in some connection with sin. And yet the scriptures say they were not. They were not truly penitent. And, and how do we make sense of that? How can one be sorrowful in some sense over sin and yet not be possessed of godly sorrow? The distinction is actually quite straightforward. And it's something that you know, you know even if you don't maybe realize it at the minute. There's a real difference between what we call attrition and what we call contrition. Attrition is somebody fearing or hating the evil or the pain that comes on account of sin. This is what you and I often envisage whenever you and I think about that kind of, well, that kind of confession or that kind of remorse that's expressed on the gallows or before a criminal faces execution. Are they really sorry? Well, well maybe, but, but more likely than not, they're more upset about the consequences of sin than they are about sin itself. And contrition is exactly the opposite. Genuine sorrow, godly sorrow for sin, as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 7, is sorrow over the sinfulness of sin itself, not over the flames of hell. Not over the temporal consequences that sin may bring, but, but genuine contrition is, is a genuine hatred for sin itself. The soul tastes something of its evilness. And because he sees its wickedness, he's made sorrowful. In other words, friend, what you have here, what you have here is a difference between somebody who hates the punishment for sin and somebody who hates sin itself. Now, friend, if we hold all of these things together, of course this asks you and it asks me a basic question. Of which kind of sorrow do I know? And I think we can ask a question that, that might really get to the heart of that. Let me ask you if, you, if you were if you were promised upon divine authority that you you would be delivered from hell and that you would be delivered from every painful consequence of your beloved sin but you could sin freely and listlessly. You could give yourself over to that beloved sin. No consequences, no negative consequences in this life or the next. Friend, what would you do with that? What would you do with that? As we continue this evening, I want you to to see here not just the regret as expressed here in this text, we also need to look at the request briefly that these five foolish virgins make. I want you to notice a couple of things out of this. First of all, the request itself is of the wise virgins, give us of your oil. And you have to recognize that in this text, you see here that they are acknowledging their need. These virgins recognize recognize that they were impoverished, recognize that their preparation was poor. 
And I also want you to recognize, too, that they, they see something, some small thing of their impotence. They need to go to these wise virgins for help. And even beyond that, I think with good reason, you and I are supposed to see here that the foolish virgin recognizes the wisdom of the wise virgins. Maybe, maybe you and I are supposed to have the idea that, that the foolish virgins went out not prepared as much, perhaps ridiculing the wise virgins who took their oil with their vessel. But now that's not the case. Now they recognize that the wise virgins, they had it right from the beginning. You might say, well, then what's wrong with this request? What's wrong with this request? Because, of course, in the parable itself, we're told that this was not a good request at all. Well, the answer to that question is that, of course, this was a selfish request. Give us of your oil. Why? So that our lamps might burn. But you remember what the wise virgins say in reply, that if they do so, Their lamps, all of their lamps might go out. And so this request, if fulfilled, will be to the detriment of their companions, the wise virgins, to the dishonor of the bride, and to the bridegroom. This this request, friend, was not good at all. Primarily in view, it had self. And friend, if you were listening to this in the first century, that's precisely what you would think as well. Here you have five virgins who don't care if the bride or the bridegroom come and there are no lamps lit. These ones are just pursuing their own self-interest. And friend, what this teaches us then as we, as we obviously interpret this text as we ought to, applying it to false Christians, this teaches us that the hypocrites in view here, will desire grace, but they will do so for selfish ends. That's what the oil here represents. It it represents a lively, a real profession of faith. And and the idea is, is that these ones want that, they want that grace, but really for their own self-interest. Now we see this in scripture as well. Friend, if you remember Simon Magus, the the man that I had mentioned to you previously from the book of Acts, he wanted in earnest that the apostles would would give him the power that that he saw exercised by others. Well, why did he want that? He saw, of course, that this this gave those ones who had that power notoriety. It, It gave them a name. It gave them influence. And so he wants that. We can go to the Revelation, Revelation chapter 3, and we can go to the church of Sardis. And why do they want grace? Well, evidently, it's so that they can have a name. That's what Christ says of them. He says, you have a name. You have a name to life, even though you are dead. Friend, again, this is one of the most searching elements of this text. Because here you see a principal distinction between the wise and the foolish. And that the foolish may ask for something that's intrinsically good, but they do so only for their own interests. And so it is with a hypocrite. So it is with a false Christian, friend. They only desire. They only desire those graces, those things that other Christians deem and and should deem as being respectable. They They only want those kinds of things 
Perhaps just to console them so that, so that they don't go to hell, at least. They don't think they will. Or maybe they only want salvation, friend, for their own purposes. All of that, friend, all of that, and our generation especially needs to hear this, all of that centers upon self. And all of that can be exercised by a man, by a woman who is not born again. So let me ask, what does true repentance and faith look like here? Why why would a true believer long for graces? Why would somebody genuinely long for salvation, if not for selfish ends? The answer to that comes to us all throughout the word of God. But but allow me just to read to you one place. It's taken from Jeremiah. Jeremiah praying really is the voice of the church. He says, O Lord, though our iniquities testify against us, do thou it for thy name's sake. He's asking God for mercy. And he's saying, show mercy for thy name's sake. Note what though the prophet is saying. Why does he crave the mercy of God? Why does he crave this this pardoning and this purging grace? Friend, it's not ultimately to escape hell. Ultimately, says the prophet, it is for your name to be exalted. And friend, the person who's been born again and so can alone exercise true saving faith, that is their desire overall. Yes, yes, they don't want to go to hell. Yes, they are fleeing the wrath to come, but the principal desire that they have, even as they ask for grace, is not for self-interest. That new nature, friend, has been taught that in salvation, God is exalted, and it's the exaltation of God that they principally aim at. This is what the scriptures hold out to us in 1 Corinthians 1. Jesus Christ, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness, sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. The new nature, friend, that alone can exercise true faith, recognizes this truth. And so for God's sake, because it longs to see the God whom it now loves exalted, now it cries for your own name's sake, pardon my sin. Oh friend, this is so radically different than the hypocrite in our text. They just don't want themselves to be dishonored. Come come of anyone else what might. Let the bride, the bridegroom be dishonored. Let it be to the detriment of others. It doesn't matter just so that I don't go to hell. But friend in our text and right throughout the scriptures, those who are possessed of true faith plead for these things with an eye to God's glory. You see, it's that work of regeneration alone that leads the soul to see God so. And so leads the soul to exercise this faith. A friend, there we have the foolish virgin in our text. Their regret and their request. And so as we close, as we have every night so far, we have to come back from this text, heavy as it is, with a basic question for ourselves. And that question is, what kind of repentance do I know? Friend, I won't ask you about your tears. Judas had tears. Ahab, Saul, 
Simon, the rich young ruler, had tears. I'll ask you instead, why? Why were you broken over your sin? Friend, was it simply because you loathed the punishment? Or was it because you loathed the sin itself? And I could ask even a second question to that, and the question would be, why are you here tonight? Are you, are you here because you desire God to do a work of grace for his namesake in your life? That most of all, it's your desire to see his name exalted. And those are the kinds of questions that this text certainly asks of us. But for those who are true Christians, friend, I recognize, and from personal experience, that these are, these are difficult themes. So what of the doubting Christian? The one who has true faith, but, but whose assurance is shaken. Just briefly, I know this is a bit of a wayside, but I think it's important. The first thing I need to say to you is, is first of all, even those who are truly his, God will drive them away from false rests. That is assurance on shaky or false ground. In other words, somebody can be a true believer, but the grounds of their comfort can be false. And so, friend, in themes like this, God uses these things to drive us onto that which is sure. It's better, surer ground that we should base our assurance upon. And that's why these questions ought to be asked of everyone. Friend of you and of me. Because even the true believer needs so often to be driven away from his false rests. But the second thing that we could look at principally that this kind of, this kind of shaken assurance does for the believer is that it urges fuller repentance. It reminds the believer that, that a genuinely and well-functioning believer will be like the wise virgin. They won't be contented with a measure of grace. They will aim ultimately at the glory of God. And, and so it will stir up in them that inward disposition to those things. And so, friend, if you are, friend, if you are wrestling with questions of assurance, and, and perhaps you are a genuine believer, friend, don't despise the wrestling. This too is for the Christian's good. Now, friend, as I've said even in the flyer, this series is not to sow unnecessary doubt. It is that you and I are to make sure that our grace, our grace that we perceive is, is of God's working and not of our contriving. But if you are unconverted, Friend, if you, if you are like the, the ten virgins, you have a good name, a good reputation, you, you, you never saw yourself perhaps as, as an unconverted Christian, so to speak, what are you supposed to do in light of what we've just seen this evening? Well, friend, I would submit to you that you are to employ the means. Only God can do this work of grace, that's true, but, but you are to employ the means to make sure that that, friend, you're not like the foolish virgins in our text, who perhaps, like the bridegroom's announcer, has reminded them they're ill-prepared, but they go about their preparation wrongly. The means that you and I are supposed to use, friend, first of all, are 
is that of, of, of course, coming under the word of God. That is the principal means by which God converts souls. We are also to make use of meditation. And just briefly, friend, as we close, I want to I highlight six things that you and I are to meditate on. If you find yourself unconverted, if you doubt that you are in Christ, friend, take these six things with you. First of all, friend, you need to meditate on grace itself. You need to meditate much on the fact that, that friend, if God could give you ten thousands of universes, if he could give you the greatest of all possible wealth, it would pale in comparison to the preciousness of the grace that you need and the grace that he offers in Jesus Christ. You need to see the grace of God as being of greater value than anything else. And you need to meditate on that. The second thing is you need to also meditate on the sinfulness of sin. Friend, you ought to make much of sin. You ought to see it, not as the world sees it. But friend, take the least sin and remember it is a sin against an infinite God. And so it carries with it infinite guilt. Friend, meditate much on the depth of sin. And if you need to see the depth of sin, I'd urge you to look to Calvary. Where just as sin, the sins of God's people were imputed to Christ, just as they were imputed to Christ, though He was the natural, the eternal Son of God, He had to bear the eternal wrath of God, even the pains of the second death in body and in soul. Such is the gravity of sin. You need to meditate also, friend, on your own impotence. Not only is it the case that, that you are lost and undone, but you cannot help yourself. Friend, it must be the almighty, the arresting grace of God that will rescue you or you will perish. You are utterly at God's mercy. And it's right that you would be so. Fourthly, friend, you are to meditate too on the fact that the scriptures call you to earnestly seek salvation. In another parable, Christ gives the illustration of a man who sells everything that he has just that he might buy the field in which the pearl of great price was found. Friend, the calls to seek Christ are never lackadaisical. The calls are always earnest. Friend, if God made you a seeker of him for, for a year, for 10 years, for 70, for 80 years, and still you didn't find him until on your deathbed. You would still have to spend an eternity praising him for the infinite grace that you've received. He's worth the waiting. And the calls are that you would wait in earnest. And the fifth thing, friend, that I'd remind you, and it even comes from our text this evening. You and I are to remember that few, few will go through the narrow gate. That is, few in the world will be saved. And you're also to meditate as this parable shows us that even many of the pure, many of those who had a name, many in the visible church will perish. But sixthly and finally, friend, you are to meditate on the fact as well that the promises that are made to the penitent are real. And that those promises are really tendered to you, even this evening. 
And so, friend, you are to meditate time and time again on the fact that you are to cast yourself upon Christ and him only for salvation. To renounce all righteousness in self. To throw away, as it were, all manner of self-interest and worldly interest as God supplies grace. To rest only upon him. Amen.